Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. American Giant makes great clothing. Sweatshirts, jeans, and more. Right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Code STAPLE20. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. Before we start the show, how does the offer of free beer sound to you? The kind people at Beer52 are offering a free case of eight craft beers sourced and curated from the best breweries on the planet. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash wisdom and cover the £5.95 postage fee. Each case is delivered directly to your doorstep so there's no need to leave the house. Head to beer52.com forward slash wisdom for that deal. Anyway, on with the show. We'll be looking at England's high-scoring T20i series against Pakistan, the opening rounds of the Vitality Blast, the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy, the Caribbean Premier League and more. I'm Yaz Rana and to go through all that with me today is the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon. Managing editor of Wisdom.com, Ben Gardner, and Crickvis analyst, Ben Jones. Ben, welcome to the show. First time you've been back on in a while. Um, the England-Pakistan series was, was brilliant. 185 was the lowest score in a completed innings. Um, Joe, how much closer are England to knowing what their first choice T20 side is after that series? Um, not a huge amount closer, I don't think. Um, some of the players who had a chance to really... Uh, impressed like Sam Biddings, like Lewis Gregory, didn't really grab it. Um, Tom Banton, I suppose, is. I don't think he did anything that anyone wasn't who's watched him wasn't expecting because he's clearly a, a special talent. I feel he's he's probably nudged up a little bit more than he would have been otherwise. Uh, and a massive knock in even in losing calls for Mo and Ali yesterday, who uh, Phil and I were just saying as we were as, uh, just before the match that. It felt like Moen could potentially be just a few bad performances away from not playing for England much more. Um, partly because his form isn't great, partly because he's talked about losing the love for a bit, for it, um, a little bit in the past, uh, and he has just not looked in great touch. So I was so pleased to see him bat in the way he did yesterday, even though he couldn't quite get England over the line. I guess, I guess it isn't that surprising that Banter did well, but it was a really good attack to do that well against. Yeah, especially you, you were saying in terms of like checking lots of boxes as well and that like it's hard to think of like a more varied attack basically in the world and you've got like a, a left arm spinner and a leg spinner will both be turning the ball away from the bat and then gun left arm and right arm quicks and he kind of was doing it against all of them basically so yeah is that, that that's a huge box check that that almost takes England slightly further away from knowing what their best 11 is because mm. now Banton's closer to it and it sort of maybe puts a bit of a question mark over Jason Roy I guess who obviously is injured but is going to need to start performing properly in T20 cricket, I guess, to keep hold of that place. But yeah, the, the Moen Alley is the, the huge positive, isn't it? And I think it, Morgan, obviously, is, we've probably talked a lot about how good a captain he is, but just the the faith that he puts in players and that is able to get performances like that out of them. That was a nice detail that he asked Moen to do the team talk before the game yesterday and to have that kind of responsibility put on you even when you're kind of really struggling for form and to show that you're still like a valued member of the setup. Uh, it's yeah that must just like really really help basically mm. um, well in the next 10 minutes I'm going to be asking all three of you for what you think the England top 7 should be for the Australia series so get your thinking caps on Ben Moeen hit arguably the innings of the series in that final game scoring 61 of 33 crucially from number 5 you'd think when all the England big guns who've been rested from this series come back in he probably drops down to number 7 but as you've written before that's not how you use Moeen 
yeah, it's it's not how I'd use him. I think that his best role is one which exploits his explosiveness, but also his strength against spin bowling. He's such a good hitter of spin and has been in a, a lot of different conditions around the world against some really top quality bowlers, particularly in the IPL for RCB. He's really shown it. And I think that promoting him up the order, even if he's carded at seven, to just kind of pull it out your sleeve, pull up your sleeve and just say, right, we're going to put Moeen in the middle, coming in around the maybe the eighth, eighth of the twelfth over, around the halfway mark, just to kind of really take down the spinners. Even if he only faces 10, 10 balls or so, if he makes 25 off 10 and just and hits a couple of sixes like he did off uh, off Shadav last night, you can suddenly, the complexion of the innings changes and you've still got either Butler to come or Livingston or any of these finishes that England are going to try. And I think that it's almost a, a free pass for England to, to use him in that way. Because at the moment, if he's just batting at seven and coming in with five balls to go and swinging from the hip, you're not seeing the best of Moeen. He's too good for that. He's a classy player. It's not really his best role. It's remarkable that he did what he did in South Africa, given... You know that, that his relative strength or his relative lack of strength at coming in and hitting from ball one, and obviously he really took South Africa apart in that series. But I think hopefully, I was saying this to uh, to my colleague Freddie earlier, the fact that he's done it in England colours now. He's not done it for RCB or he's not done it for Multan on the other side of the world. He's done it for England in England. Whether or not the management will put a bit more faith in that and kind of be prompted to try this tactic again to use Moeen in the middle because he can be so destructive and he's just he, he's in the side for his for his bowling and largely although that's that role is changing it's exciting that we're starting to see a little bit more of a, a few glimpses of what he can do in that particular that quite specific role yeah because did he only bowl two overs this series is that right i, I think that is yeah, yeah he, bowled, right. he bowled two overs. I mean, he, took, he took a wicket yesterday in, in the power play and he's what taking two of england's last three power play wickets which is a you know, something that England have, have struggled with. So he's a, he's a valuable bowler, I guess, for matchups. But England aren't picking him as like on their front five in a way. Exactly that. Exactly that. I think it's he's now in the side to bowl to left-handers, mm-hmm. and particularly in the power play because he, as we've seen in ODIs, he's very effective bowling with a new ball. It doesn't seem to disrupt his rhythm. Um, and the, the actually, if you actually look at the number of balls he's bowling per match, it's gone down significantly in the last twelve months for England. And it hasn't for domestic sides. They're still trusting in his bowling, but England are using him in this very specific way against very particular batsmen. And the fact that Pakistan don't have many right, don't have many left-handers, they're very right-hand dominated, might have affected it disproportionately. England got get a bit spooked by Moeen against right-handers, but even we, again we've seen it in ODIs. So I think there's a few factors at play. But you're right, he is he is bowling less, so his batting does need to come to the fore as a result. They're going to have to put faith in his bowling, aren't they? With a with the next World Cup now being in India, they can't have him just as a just as bowling at left handers. Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, it's T Twenty. You can be a hyper specialist, and if, if his role is to play, to bat in those middle overs, and then come in and bowl one or two overs to crucial players, I don't think that's that bad. Especially when you've got Ben Stokes, who mm. kind of allows you to have him as the fifth, sixth, fifth, sixth bowler, have your all rounders fulfilling that role. I don't. I think ideally you want Moeen more comfortably bowling three overs regularly, four overs regularly, rather than yeah, being this kind of <laughs> pinch bowler, as it were. And that's interesting what you said about, I'd, I'd missed that detail about Morgan asking Moen to do the, the pre-match chat. That sounds, that's, it's a very Morgan thing to do, really smart thing to do. And we've seen when Moen is leading that Worcestershire side, as he did when um, when Leach was out injured, it just becomes his team and it clearly brings the best out of him. And he's always said that in, in te- test cricket as well. He's at his best when he's given more responsibility. Um, and again, I mean, Ben's laid out the case for him batting at five very nicely, but on form alone you wouldn't have said Moen coming out of five was a particularly smart move yesterday but obviously it, it paid off another person who had quite an interesting series I guess is Darren Milan so his overall career T20i numbers are still great he averages 50 from 13 games with a strike rate of 148 and he's ranked number five in the world but will England be slightly concerned by how slowly he starts Ben he scored 23 of 23 in the first game and seven of eight in the third in a game that England only lost by five runs yeah and even in the second when he got the brilliant 50 he was 10 off 10 as well and I think they they will be yeah slightly concerned I don't know if he actually advanced his case that much in this series sounds harsh day when he was what top the averages and uh and, and yeah did play a good hand in that second game but I think England the, the way to there's there's a couple ways to look at those stats either you look at that as representative of what Milan is as a player and that he is a player who is going to average 50 with the bat and strike 150 with the ball in which case you kind of have to pick him or you see that the average is sort of an indication of him slightly overperforming in that he's not going to like get scores two out of every three times as he has done so far in T20 cricket. 
and that because of those slow starts when he does start getting more failures those are going to be quite costly failures it's going to be like the 15 or 15 or the you know the 18 or 20 rather than uh like a sort of a, an, an eight or six which actually uh doesn't hurt the team too much even though it will hurt your own career numbers so I, th- I think that England will still be slightly concerned about that and I guess the question is is like do they sort of keep basically because he by rights he's kind of earned a place in the side and do they kind of keep him in the side to see if actually he is a player who's going to get sort of like a, a match winning 60 two out of every three games or do they sort of say okay we kind of know what we're going to get from Milan a player who when he gets in and he will get in a quite a reasonable amount of the time is going to go on to a big score but when he doesn't get in is going to sort of hurt England a bit and then look at someone else I guess um not 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 that that would mean he goes out of England's plans just that do they keep looking at Milan or do they look at someone else and just figure out what their overall options are I guess I think that the comparison between Banton and Milan in this series is quite interesting because I think that whilst obviously Banton scored more runs and probably made more impact generally I think the way that they went about their their performances, I think, is is an interesting contrast. Banton is more seems to be more of a player who's happy to come out and go from ball one, and that is a very England thing to do. That's what Morgan wants his team to do. They want he wants to attack from ball one, and there's an almost that kind of slight inherent criticism in the idea that Milan is batting from self a little bit, and that averages are kind of for vanity, and run rate is for you know for the team. And I think that Banton has. I mean, just straightforwardly, he batted very well and has put forward a very good case to be inside. But the fact that Milan just didn't manage to come out and have one knock where he just went from ball one and showed a kind of, you know, bonhomie that he can he can play like Morgan wants his whole side to, I think that is held against him a little bit. I think he is, he is still seen as being on the periphery trying to prove his case, whereas Banton is like, they can mould him and whatever what into whatever they want him to be. And so I think it will come down, I think, to a shootout between those two to be in the squad, personally, as the backup batsman. And I think that right now Banton is ahead of Milan for that reason. I think for that for that sense of he can be ultra aggressive in a way that we know Milan can be in domestic cricket, but he hasn't shown it international cricket consistently. Mm. I, I broadly agree with what both of you said, but I I sometimes wonder how much we're swayed by how good Banton just looks. Like some of the shots he plays are just so eye catching, and also there's the narrative there of a really exciting twenty one year old and with, the youth and yeah the exuberance. Yeah. I, I absolutely, uh, I completely, and we you could see that a bit with the. Pakistan selection as well in that they obviously went completely with experience in the first match also the first and second match um, and a lot of people quite critical certainly you see on Twitter a lot of Pakistani fans critical of Hafiz being in there at the start of that tournament and then by the end you're like well obviously he, he absolutely has to play um, Haider Ali not being picked is obviously the more controversial pick and there's obviously room for both of them in the side that's that's where they got it wrong um, but ha- yeah, I think Hafiz is a good example that however young and exciting and everyone wants to see the new player and that's completely understandable and that the media are guilty of that fans are guilty of that there is room for that sensible head but I'm not sure Milan is necessarily required in what England have already got because I mentioned that number three role as well is that is the idea of an anchor at number three is that even is that already outdated in T20 I mean some some players do it very successfully no it's certainly not outdated I mean T20 is a tactically nuanced format where you can, obviously, it's, kind of, it's Jonathan Wilson's short blanket idea of like, you know, if, if you pull it towards your batting, you leave your bowling short. And if England are going to say that they want to be a bowling heavy side, then having Milan or Root in that top four, where you're just kind of being a bit more secure is is fine. But they're not a bowling heavy side. They haven't really got any good bowlers. Or they've got very few. And so they need to be ultra aggressive with the bat. And I think if you've got the batting depth that they've got in literally in the lineup, not in terms of the squad numbers, but literally down, they bat all the way down to 11, basically. You don't need an anchor. You don't need anyone whose primary role is kind of like bogging, bogging things down, really. Mm. The one thing I do think Milan has in his favour is that he's left-handed, which is obviously England have, England have Moeen and they have Stokes. But if Moeen's batting down at seven and they want to maybe open with a left-hand, right-hand combination against certain attacks who maybe have a, a gun-off spinner who can bowl in the power play, then Milan might be not ideal for that. But against someone like Mohamed, um, Imad Wazim, who's obviously turning the ball into the left-hander, then they might go for a match-up opening thing. We spoke about match-up bowling, but England might be kind of pushed in that direction. But I think that's if the the, uh, the comparison between Milan and Banton gets very close. I think right now we can talk about the narratives and Banton being young and it's all getting a bit swept up by gifts. He's a YouTube. He's like the equivalent of a YouTube footballer that you know you've seen like he's him do all his tricks and stuff. He's a gift, but he's a gift batsman. But I think right now he's he's actually just better than David Milan. Like 
just as a pure batsman right now, I think Tom Banton is better. His his impact, to, to give us a plug, this series was plus eight, Banton's was about zero. So that basically means Milan is uh, offering exactly what we'd expect the average batsman to do. And Banton was offering about eight runs more per match than we'd expect the average batsman to do. And I, th- I think there is a gulf between them right now. I, I would say just on Milan and kind of the the role he's trying to fill in general like I, I the, the selfishness thing is obviously it's it's definitely like a popular thing and Morgan's even almost said as much himself in New Zealand when he when when he you know made that brilliant hundred but didn't attempt to buy on the last ball of the innings and Morgan kind of came out and said he wasn't even really asked about it but came out and said we can't have players doing that sort of thing uh Milan has since said that that was like he kind of got his sums wrong he thought it was the uh the last ball of the 19th over on the last ball of the 20th over and I, I actually think that Milan's approach stems more from probably playing a lot of counter cricket and being often like basically far and away the best batsman in a Middlesex side that basically live or die work by him succeeding or failing so there that approach is much more justified where he can face you know 10 balls get himself in and then he because because and the other thing is as well is that it's not as if I mean sometimes Milan is making these sort of like kind of neither here or there 50 off 35 sort of things but it's not as if he's ending not out 80 off 60 he's going on to get like proper big hundreds he's, he's catching up to a properly rapid extent rather than just starting slowly and then scoring at like an acceptable rate he starts slowly and then scores really 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 quickly so i can like he is he's, he's like he's i don't really want to be doing him down he's a very good t20 player and that approach i guess i guess the the tough thing is is can he play a way that he has not had to play and it would have been to the team's detriment to play for 12 years of his career because that's what England need and I guess it's a mm. challenge of international cricket. Ben, if the T20 World Cup started tomorrow and every England player was available, what would your England top seven be? I think England, uh, they'll be pleased with the progress they've made in this series, but I don't think anything's radically changed. I don't think anyone's kind of gone over and above what they're expecting. So I think it will still be Roy and Butler opening the batting, Besto at three, Morgan at four, Stokes at five. Um, and then the finisher role at the number six is the one that we're all kind of playing around with. I, I think they'll end up with Sam Billings there at the moment, especially because it's now in India, not in Australia. And that makes a big difference because he's such a good player of spin that if he needs to come in earlier, then that is a, he is very comfortable there. And then Moeen at seven. Um, obviously, personally, I would rather have Liam Livingston in there as a, as a hitter of pace at the end of it. Because although there is that benefit of, of the spinner strength of Billings, I, I think you want your finisher to just be able to smash sixes off the seams. And I think Livingston is the guy who can do that from ball one. But yeah, it's a shame for Banton and Milan that neither of them have really kicked on and mm. kind of forced in. But these guys who are in the team are really good. Like Roy is not as good in T20 as he is in ODIs, but he's still class. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. I mean, but Billings had a, Billings batted well in that last, uh, last T20I, but he did have a real opportunity to like really prove he could nail that finishing role. He didn't quite do it. Even in that little flurry where he got, what, 11 or five balls, uh, to win the second match and then got out just before the end. I mean, it doesn't really matter, but actually it, it does a little bit. Billings has talked about this when I did an interview the other day. Walking off, having won the team your game, won your team the game, even if it's only 12 not out, is quite significant. So tiny little things like that really don't help his mm. cause. And he has had quite a lot of chances now. They are adding up. Joe, what, what do you think the top seven should look like? Well, I'm kind of comfortable with the personnel. I think the order is really difficult, but I would go uh, Roy and Banton, the top best day three Morgan four and then I've got Butler and then Stokes and Moen as a as a floater uh, I've got I've flip-flopped massively on whether Butler should open or not because uh, there's part of me I just want to see him bat as much as I possibly can he's still my favorite England batsman to watch but I do feel when we're talking about when we get to number six and we're like, oh, or five or six and we're like we're not quite sure who to pick I guess I'm being a bit old school and I just I think we just pick our best batsman and then work out the order from there and I think Butler's absence, I mean, fair, Moen batted really well yesterday, but Butler's absence in this series has again shown that if Morgan doesn't come off, that middle order potentially does look a little bit light on experience and on kind of match-winning capability. Uh, so I have I think I've flip-flopped back to Butler being in, in that middle order. Um, but it is, you've got a Morgan, Butler, Stokes, Moen, a, none of them should be batting seven, really. Mm. Uh, and I'd be potentially interested in the idea of Stokes batting three and playing this role that Milan is sort of playing. Uh, if you wanted to get rid of one of Roy, Banton or Besto, put Stokes up to three and then you kind of free up a middle order role. I was going to say, I, I think there's been a lot of chat about Root maybe coming back into the side as a, as a, a kind of anchor or a rotator or whatever you call it, an enabler. 
Um, I think Stokes can do that role. I think if, if you want a guy to play that role at three, if you don't want to have a bear Stokes trying to hit every ball for six, if you want to have a guy playing that role, Stokes is more than good enough. It suits him quite well, right? Yeah. As well, because he's not great at coming in and hitting from the off. He, no. he, he's he's much better, as we've seen in the ODI side, but basically kind of doing what he does at number five in the ODI side, at number three in the T20 side, in a kind of condensed version. I think that could work really well, but then we have got a lot of top three options. So. <laughs> uh, and we haven't mentioned Lewis Gregory at all, I guess, who, who had a bold okay this series. I, I think he bowled better than you'd have expected him to, I suppose. He didn't, I don't, don't think he... Oh, I did, he, did, he took a wicket, but but he, but he was like he didn't go for loads of runs essentially. And I thought he batted okay yesterday as well. Um, like he, and and I, I guess England will probably be impressed by his attitude a few times when he like he, he's never tried to sort of adapt from what he's done in county cricket. Uh, he's always just come and tried to hit and ball one. Like there was one in New Zealand, I think that was six off two, which is like almost like the ideal at least you could play to impress Owen Morgan in a way. Uh, but uh, yes, yeah, so, and I, I, I don't know because I mean because his, his blast stats are just ridiculous that you wonder if England is still a bit curious and feel that like with with that finisher role you basically do need to give someone like loads of chances because it's such a hard thing to succeed in essentially. It's it's the thing about domestic finishers trying to make the the step up to international is that you go from in the blast getting fifteen goes a season to suddenly you get three goes and everyone watches you and says, "Oh, Matt Parkinson bowls too slowly and none of these guys can bat," and it's not really it's not really fair. I think with Gregory. His bowling is a bit of a misnomer. I think. I think in this series he was fit. he was bowling Stokes' his overs. I don't think if he plays, even if he bats as a finisher in the World Cup, he's not going to bowl more than one over really as a bit of a change of ends guy. But he his batting is inflated by Taunton, I think, and he has shown skill around the world in PSL and stuff like that. He is clearly a talented player. But I think the fact that England have sent him away, partly to go and you know give Somerset a bit of a break, having had all all their players nabbed throughout the summer. But I do think he's he's kind of found his level a bit I'm not, I don't think he's there's a reason why he hasn't you know taken everyone apart at this level I, I think he's just not quite good enough and that's, you know, that's no no great shame some players just aren't quite good enough for international cricket and that's okay it's yeah. a hard role to impress in right as well yeah. because you feel like talking about Milan and Banton and they have to go hard from the off because it's the power play but you still do get a bit of time and players like Gregory O'Hever is filling that role trying to impress without a brilliant track record behind them they can quite quickly be rewritten off without having had that many, literally had that many balls to face. And exactly. That, and he might be one of those. Well, Andre Russell fails more often than he succeeds and he's the best finisher in the world. Like you, you're only going to succeed. You know, the best finishers were, you know, one in two, one in three. So if you, you know, if you succeed once in a T20 series of three matches, then you've done pretty well. You're like right up there with the best in the world. So I think if England do genuinely see a talent in Gregory and they, they should stick with him for a bit longer and give him more chances, I just... I think there are other guys who are more deserving of those chances and that, and that investment. Yeah, I, th- I think that probably is right. But England are still in that sort of mindset where they do get a little bit tempted by someone who can just bowl a bit, essentially. Yeah. Like m- m- more than perhaps they should be. But that is still how they view it. I think if you look at Joe Denley's continued sort of inclusion in the T20 sides, I think that's... I don't think people are looking at him versus, say, Joe Root and thinking that Joe Denley is a better T20 batsman than... Joe Root, but that the fact that like you know he can bowl an over or two of of legs, but even though he kind of shouldn't really ever be doing that in you know an international team. Root bowls game. a bit as well. Yeah, that that that's true. I, I guess it's the fact that it's just wrist mm. spin as well yeah. as the uh, yeah the thing. Ed Smith explained the Denley v Root thing quite well. He said that uh, right now Joe Root is not in England's first choice eleven, so you'd rather him be playing than be carrying drinks, basically, which I think is pretty reasonable. Um, ben, you mentioned it earlier that England England may have won 10 of their last 14 T20 games but taking wickets up top continues to be a bit of a problem they've taken just three wickets in the power play in their last six T20Is two of them from Moeen against left-handed openers um Joe does that make David Willey's omission from the Australia series all the more bizarre as somebody who is good at taking wickets up top uh on the face of it is it's harsh in that he was unlucky to miss out on the World Cup when Jofra arrived uh and then he said himself he fell out of love with the game a little bit and then when he did get his chance against Ireland he did very well but I guess so yeah so it does seem harsh but I guess looking at from England's perspective David Willey doing well against Ireland does that necessarily prove much either way I'm, I'm not really sure it does and if you compare him to Sam Curran who's basically taken his taken his spot it's kind of one or the other at the moment um, I think they think Sam Curran's got a higher ceiling and brings a bit more 
to the group as a whole. But I think right now, I think Willie is a better pick than than Sam Curran in both white ball formats. But whether that's the case in a year, two years, that's what they've got to decide. And what Curran is twenty two, Willie's thirty. So if if they're thinking about two World Cups in the space of if, well two years, then I can I'm not that surprised they've gone for Sam Curran, even though it is another very unfortunate situation for Willie, who's basically done nothing wrong. I think it's worth underlining quite how good Willie is in the power play. Like no nobody in T Twenty history has taken more wickets at a lower strike rate than Willie. He is fantastic in that phase. In internationals or all all T Twenties. Wow, he's a, he's a he's a fantastic player. And I think England do underrate him. I think partly because he's, there's always been that kind of thing with, oh yeah, he's also a batsman, but he's never really done it with the bats. So you kind of, there's that sense of him being a slightly unfulfilled talent. But I do think it's worth underlining how bad England are in the power play with the, with the, with the ball. Their, their strike rate this year is, um, I think they take a wicket every 60 balls. And of all T20 international teams ever, all the associates, everyone else, all, all teams, no team has ever had a worse strike rate in a calendar year than England this year in the power play of all the teams that have played five matches. A few caveats, but you know what I mean. Basically, England, are, like at the moment, they are terrible at bowling in the power play. And I think what they what they need to do is just kind of get back to basics a little bit. England, they're kind of picking Saqib Mahmood on potential, but he's he's a very young bowler. He's learning his trade at this level. I think it's fair, it's quite harsh to say, oh yeah, in 12 months, you're going to be England's new ball bowler in the World Cup. When David Willey is there, he's saying, I'm still doing it. I offer a left arm angle. I'm swinging it. I'm a demonstrably different bowler to everyone else who in in this side. I've got experience in Australia playing for Perth Scorchers in a winning Perth Scorchers side, albeit a few years ago. And there's going to be a T20 World Cup in Australia shortly after the one in India. And I think that England, they don't need to overthink it. I think their best attack is still, or still the best new ball attack is still Archer and Willey. They offer entirely different threats. Left arm, right arm, swing, pace, tight line, kind of pitching it up. They've, there's everything there. That should be one of the best opening pairs in the world, I think, in T20 cricket. And yet England just seem to be getting a little bit confused with it. And there's, there's probably good reason for it, but I, I'm not quite sure why they're not just in just saying, David Willey, you're, you're the best bowler we have, play. Hmm. So what you'd throw in and then Jordan and, and Rashid well, and then... My, ta- my attack would be um, Archer, Willey, Rashid, Moeen, Stokes, and then a death bowler. So either Jordan or Curran or okay. Wood, whatever you think. But I think that that is still England's best attack in in kind of on Mars against a neutral. Yeah, I think I think that with Willie, first of all, he was really good in the 2016 World T20. In the finals, did he get two for 20, three for 20 or something like that? He did well across um, the tournament as a whole. Yeah. Um, and then also for a long time when the focus was purely on ODI cricket, there's all this chat about, oh, he takes wickets of the new world. But he didn't actually do it that well in ODI cricket. Uh, and I wonder if that's influenced England's selection. Uh, I, I do sometimes think that England conflate the two white ball formats sometimes with their, uh, how, how, how they view certain players. I was, I was going to ask Ben, really, how, how good is Willie with the bat? Is it that England haven't seen the best of him? Is he one of those who struggles to make the step up? Is he one of those like Moeen who could flourish in a very specialised role, a sort of matchup sort of thing? Or, or what is it? I think it's a bit of that. And I think there's actually a bit of what you were saying about Milan in that Willie has often at domestic level been the kind of explosive batsman in the side. And, and he's he's used to having that bit of responsibility and batting up top. And he's just definitely not going to bat up top for England. He's not he's not better than anyone above him in the order. Um, I think a lot, yeah, and a lot of the time he's coming in facing three balls and just swinging from the hip. Personally, I don't think he's got the, the track record um, that Moeen has that is worthy of, say, a promotion to the middle overs to take down spin, although he is very good. There's, I mean, not, Perth Scorchers, in, when he was over there, did try it a few times and it didn't really work. And I, I think there's a, there's a case to say that actually when he's against um, when he's against a, a new ball attack or against an attack which is kind of well-suited to him, maybe maybe it's worth a, worth a go if Moeen isn't playing and you want to stick a left-hander up the order to take down a slow left arm or something like that. But I don't think... I think it clouds the issue. If 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 David Willey didn't know one end from bat from another, he'd still be England's best new ball bowler. And I think it's I think sometimes not to kind of shut your question down, although I have, um, is just to say, you know, focus on what he does do and has an incredible record doing and try not to get caught up in the England, you know, bits and bobs player thing. Mm-hmm. On Pakistan, they're over thirty fives and under twenty ones were really good. Um <laughs> Mohammed Hafiz played two lovely knocks. Uh, we'll have Riaz bowled the spell of the series. Um, but it was also great to see the emergence of someone who who may well be very special, 19-year-old Heder Ali. Ben, where was he in the first two games? Uh, well, I mean, you know, Sherb Malik is, a, is an experienced player. And, and you know, it's it's a Pakistan side to be uh, that, that has other youthful prospects coming through. And I can imagine that you do want those experienced heads around. You, you, I guess you do feel for, for Barra Zam as captain sometimes when there's, what, like three or four other 
former captains also <laughs> sort of on the field have, have, having their not say. Not shy to have a word either, were yeah, they? Yeah. Got ridiculous at points. That, that, it, that was the, almost the best moment in the series was after uh, Harris-Ralph bowled the, the perfect Yorker <laughs> to win the game and they all just started yelling at each other. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but I think that they're like as much as you can have too many experienced heads, Paxton will also be wary of having too few. So I think that's why they probably went with Shoaib over Hader Ali. And also, you know, I mean, had Hader Ali, you know, got out for you know third ball which you know he could well have done because that's this format we wouldn't be having this conversation he, he he played one very very good innings and is a very exciting prospect but he's also a, a 19 year old batsman with not much uh experience behind him if they if they had picked him on this tour just so he could sort of be around the squad and you know get some cricket in the bubble where there's not much to be played back home that would have been fair enough and they kind of chucked him in for a go i think you can you can see it a few different ways i, I think that it's easy with hindsight to say he should have played every game and he is obviously a hugely exciting talent had a, a brilliant PSL got good first class numbers uh, good 50 in the under 19 World Cup against India in the semi-final uh, yeah there's, there's lots to be excited about but I don't think like, like it's uh, and and also it's I think it's much easier as like a, a fan or a, a journalist looking from the outside and say like why aren't you picking all these exciting players who I want to see if they're good or not basically whereas they want to pick the side that they think is going to win a game of cricket and if they think that's Shermatic then that's kind of fair enough considering his track record and that sort of thing there's also an argument if you're going to bring Shahab Malik you've got to play him right what's the point in bringing Shahab Malik along unless he's just going to be a sort of fatherly figure on the sidelines but they've, <laughs> they've got, got enough of them in the coaching they've got plenty of them haven't they <laughs> plenty of them um so yeah I mean yeah you can basically look at it either way but it certainly when you see him back like he did yesterday it is uh tempting to think I, I, why wasn't he there earlier he's brilliant I think we, we, I know it, you can say like in hindsight oh it's easy in hindsight but like people were People really wanted him in the side before the series. He's a really, really good player. He had a great PSL. Oh, he, and, and but but like not just that great PSL. In like you look at his numbers, and you're like, oh, he did really well. Like every time he batted, I was like, right, I'm watching this guy back because he's he's amazing. Mm. And I think that Pakistan have one clear weakness in their side, which is that they don't hit sixes, and while well, they don't hit boundaries generally, and actually he is a guy who can do that. It's worth investing in a young guy, talented guy who's you know clearly on an upward trajectory. He should have played every game in this series, and they would have learned a fair bit more. Maybe maybe ahead of uh, Iftikhar in one game, Malik in another. Maybe rest Hafiz in another one or something. You kind of rotate mm. it around. But I think you want they would have been better served getting a longer look at Haider in different situations. I think. But I mean, you, I mean, Christ, the guy's so good. I mean, just look at him. He's clearly going to take the world by storm in the next few years, and we just want to kind of accelerate that process. It's a real. I know we've got lots of cricket to come still, but it was a shame that series ended when it did. Really, it was. It, I don't often say it's about T Twenty international series, but I was like a seven match series would have been great because they were so. So evenly matched, I think a kind of slightly weakened England against Pakistan over here in not their favourable conditions meant for a really, really good matchup. And we had two really good games. Mm. Um, just a shame we didn't get a, a winner at the end of it, really. Yeah, just on he- headers, like, as you said, his, his first class record is really good. He averages over 45. He scored 100 in the Caddies um, final opening the batting with the, the Pakistan first class competition. So he's a seriously, seriously talented youngster. So keep an eye on him. Amazingly, there is even more cricket to come. England's attention now turned to Australia. That series starts on Friday. Ben, apart from the usual big names, uh, anyone worth looking out for from an Aussie point of view? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. There's lots of there's lots of great there's lots of great ones. Um, one guy who I think, or two guys um, who I think will be, they might they might not play. They might play one game. They're kind of on the edge of things. But um, one is uh, Josh Philippi, the young keeper batsman, plays for the Sydney Sixers. He's amazing he kind of stands really tall really fast hands not dissimilar to, to Hyder actually but he's got a lot, lot, lot more uh, kind of body work behind him he's a really really good player and they might want to give him a go up the order just to kind of mix things up in terms of that established top order of Finch and Warner um, with the ball I'm going to do, do my best Shane Warner impression in words if not in kind of style of voice but Riley, Mer- Riley Meredith is a seriously quick young bowler and I think that you know there's a reason why a lot of Australians have been kind of banging on about him he's taken the the BBL by storm the last few seasons he's, he's a really impressive high release really quick bowler does a bit through the air kind of bowls throughout the innings as well he's, he's really versatile and I think that Australia's strength and depth for their bowling is is incredible really but if they want to kind of just kind of lengthen it even further I'd love to see them give it a go again that's like Ben was saying about kind of journalists and writers just want to see the exciting players but I think they've they've tried they've kind of toyed with Billy Stanlake, but his inter- international record has not been superb. And so I think trying to get another ultra high pace right armor into the setup, so you don't necessarily have to rely on Hazelwood or um, 
or Cummins, then I think there's 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 value to them kind of expanding that that squad and hopefully learning a bit about Meredith as well. But How ultra high pace are we talking? Uh, what like is he? quick, properly yeah. quick. He's not he's not Stanley quick, but he's yeah he's high eighties, low nineties. I mean, he's always a bit tricky in Australia and T twenty especially because he's you know storming in on these hard fast pitches for four overs. But I think he I think he's got that kind of pace in him. He's quicker than Cummins. He's that love. Um, the, the blast has started since the last time we recorded one of these shows. Uh, they've been quite a few washouts, unfortunately. Notts, Northants and Sussex are topping their respective groups at the moment. So good start on your predictions. Thank you there, very Joe. much, Yaz. I was um, waiting for that. <laughs> uh, some great games so far. We've had two ties, one between Kent and Middlesex at Lords. Tom Helm holding his nerve, conceding just five in the last over there. Um, there was another tie between Surrey and Essex. Surrey needed a one off three and still couldn't get their first win of the year. Um, so... Sorry, I've forgotten how to win in Essex. I've forgotten how to lose there. Pretty I think. much, yeah. Pretty much. Um, we've had hundreds so far from Keaton Jennings, Max Holden, and Joe Clark. Ben Duckett hit uh, 86 or 53 to help Knotts chase down 190 against Yorkshire. Joe Root, of course, has got 250 so far. Um, but, but Ben, the thing that's excited you most is is the is the is the, is the obvious loophole in the DLS rules. Yeah, not 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 excited, but taking Twitter by storm. This, yeah, isn't it? definitely, what I got most. Uh, most worked up over and it's, it's it's just taking the sheen off off the whole blast for me uh, <laughs> well, let's spread that around a little bit shall we <laughs> yeah. uh so okay so it's the, the, the problem is i think yeah yeah do, do selling but this this is a hard one to explain i think that this it's i'll preface this by saying this loophole is one of those scenarios that like once it kind of like clicks and you see what the issue is it's quite obvious that it's bad but until then it's kind of quite hard to like you kind of think like, oh, well, what, what is the issue in a way? So uh, to talk through this particular situation. So Kent were chasing 139 to win and were 52 for nought after 4.1 overs when rain came and ended the game. So not, and, and then the uh, the regulations say if you bat for less than five overs in a chase, that's it. You can't you can't reach a result, which is you might think sort of fair enough. Uh, but the issue comes and this isn't just me that thinks this so uh uh frank dykeworth and tony lewis wrote a piece about this after australia's champions trophy exit in 2017 um about how they thought that the dls wasn't being sort of implemented correctly essentially so what happens at the moment is when you are going through a rain break a readjusted total is only calculated when the rain stops and you kind of know how many overs you might have left to play and in this situation what could have happened is the rain stops when a six over game is possible. Uh, and then they would see that the adjusted target would be 40 to win. And then Kent would already be ahead of that target. So would win the game instantly without having to face another ball, even though uh, so so they, they, they would have reached their target within four point overs, even though the of the previous thing. And the, the, the issue is, is that kind of static way of calculating the overs remaining is that it happens just when the rain re- relents rather than if you count that, if you calculate that on like a fluid basis. So sort of when you reach the, the cut of time for overs being lost, after five minutes, you sort of say, okay, now the target is this, even though it's still raining. And then after 10 minutes, like now the target is a bit lower. Now the target is a bit lower. And then when you get to the point where actually, even if you did, even if conditions are clear enough for there to be a resumption, you kind of think, oh, well, uh, they're past the target. So they just say they've won because... Because uh, there's no, there's not going to be any there's not going to be a need for any more play in that situation because like uh, even if you are able to have resumption they will have already won the mm. game um, and and the six overs mark is key for this in this case because four point one overs have been bowled and you can't come back on for less than yeah. one over I think that needs that, to be completed over for the target so six overs was the minimum amount of time they could have played yes rather than five overs I think that might be even just a blast thing I think I think maybe in T twenty eyes you might be able to come back on for a five over game rather than six over game. Um, so yeah, I, I would I would recommend if you if you are interested more, which I'm I'm sure you're not, <laughs> to, to go to go and dig out the the the, the quick info piece by uh, Duckworth and Lewis. This was before Stern joined the trio. I, I saw I saw a suggestion on Twitter that he might have been against the whole idea, so we didn't put his name to a uh, to this thing. But um, oh, rumours of uh, a fallout on the exactly. DLS trio. Yeah, interesting. But it's not that. It's just Stern um, wasn't part of the trio at that point. Let's call Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so, so, so they go through quite a lot of examples. I think I think there's a, I mean, you can imagine even more fast things, especially in, in one day cricket or ODI cricket when you need 20 overs to get a result. You can imagine a team uh, 119 for naught off 19.5 overs chasing 120 to win. Uh, and then the 
rain comes and uh, it's declared no result. Whereas actually, and also the other thing is you'd have the crowd sitting around for ages, not knowing if there's going to be a resumption or not. Whereas actually in that situation, as soon as you lose two overs, you know, they've kind of won the game. And yeah, it's a... I'll, I'll speak softly because I don't want to wake any of the listeners up. <laughs> um, but with the Kent game that we were talking about, it, it wasn't the kind of the logic behind it that if Kent come back out after, if the rain does relent and they come back out, that they could lose more wickets and thus the target would adjust. Or is that, or am I completely misunderstanding that? No, so I think the, the one of the, the things is that there's a difference between there's the target score and the par score. And obviously after, um, like once the game is reduced to six overs uh, the, and they've said that's how much we're going to play now, that target score stays the same and Kent are already at that total. There, there is, to be honest, there, and that's also one of the confusing things is that say Kent had come out and it had been like reduced like a 15 over game and then had lost five wickets and five balls and been 52 for five after five overs, and then the game was reduced to six overs, then their adjusted target might well have been a bit higher than that 40, which is like, it's confusing, but I don't think it should muddy the sort of the principles behind the whole thing, which is that if the game had been reduced to a six over game, Kent wouldn't have needed to play any more cricket at all to win the game and yet lost the game because conditions weren't good enough to allow any more cricket to play. I think, uh, so I'll just read that what I felt was the clearest summation, which is that reaching result hinged, re- reaching result hinged on whether conditions improved enough for play to be possible, even though no more play was actually required to reach a result. Well, that's that sorted. Well, <laughs> uh, yeah, and if you want to carry on with this, uh, at Ben underscore wisdom, <laughs> he loves this. He'd love it. So as much for him as for you. Well, things are, he, he really does. Um, so please, he, please, ben... do t- please do tweet the right Ben, because <laughs> I'm really not that bothered. <laughs> well, Ben was in the process of moving flat uh, whilst he was writing this piece. And was re- <laughs> and after, after it was written, he, he was replying to every single person who was a little bit confused by it. Um, in a very uh, reasonable manner that I don't like to see on Twitter, I'm much for Ben Jones's style of just uh, <laughs> shouting them down. I, th- I think when you're yeah when you're dealing with something as intelligent and nuanced as what Ben's talking about, then you can you can expect a higher level of debate than whatever nonsense I'm prattling on about. Um, anyway, in in the bowling department in the in the T20 blast, the bowler with the best economy rate is probably someone you've never heard of before. It's the Birmingham Bears' 27 year old left arm wrist spinner Jake Lintot. He'd only ever played four T20 games before this year and I spoke to him earlier about his early season success and his quite interesting route to first team county cricket it's been quite a it's quite been quite a long road to be honest um I was playing for Gloucestershire back in 2018 uh, and played in a second team game against Warwickshire um and got eight for 32 in a three-day game um so impressed from there and once Gloucester um released me as it were I made contact with Warwickshire over the winter of 1819 um, with a view to trying to get some cricket ahead of uh, the for the 2019 season and then I joined up with Warwickshire in 2019 in the second team played quite a lot of cricket for them um, both red ball and white ball formats but did particularly well in the white ball stuff yeah I did I did well and I was on the cusp of being involved in the squad last year but just various things you know it just doesn't always work out how you how you want it to but stuck with it Warwickshire have been really good to me they've um they kept me involved throughout the winter and I um went up once a week I had a day off work each week and traveled up to Birmingham every Tuesday throughout the whole winter so that allowed me to maintain contact and I worked quite a lot with Graham Welch the bowling coach who's helped me a lot um and then I was meant to go on pre-season tour to La Manga, but uh, joined up for the second week because they had matches in the second week and that got camp- they came back early, so I couldn't go. And then it was really just quite a frustrating time. Um, lockdown, I think, was frustrating for a lot of people, but I tried to be positive about it and give myself the best chance. And I just had to prep myself individually, really, away from the setup. So even when the players came back in July, I wasn't coming back because... I wasn't contracted at the time and so I've just been working on, on my own game on my own really, keeping in touch with the coaches but yeah, just been a lot of lot of hard graft and a lot of fitness stuff and um, bowling on my own, batting on my own, that sort of thing so it's been quite a tough tough time but obviously it's all sort of paid off and it seems to be going quite well at the moment so I'm not trying to get too far ahead of myself um, I've obviously had two decent games but you know, T20 cricket can change quite quickly and 
you know, I'll be on the receiving end of some stick soon, I'm sure. So I'm um, just trying to keep level-headed about it already and enjoy it. Am I right in saying that you, you have worked as a teacher before? Yeah, so well, I'm not a qualified teacher, but I work in an independent school in Taunton called Queen's College. Um, and I'm head of cricket there. So, yeah, I head up the cricket programme and coach throughout the winter there and mucking on all the other sports as well. But predominantly my role is to oversee cricket across the whole college. Was it quite difficult balancing that full-time job and also trying to break into professional game as well? I'd say that's what I found the hardest prior to lockdown. So um, prior to lockdown, I was obviously juggling a a job which was sort of 60-hour weeks, quite long, intensive work. And um, finding time for your own cricket is quite challenging. And that that was a big challenge, I'd say, over the last few years has just been getting that balance and you know work can take over a lot of the time as a lot of people will know so that's that's been tough but ever since really the um lockdown came in you know I I was furloughed and I've had I had a lot of time on my hands so it allowed me to really work on my game and I feel in a really good place now because of that so I guess it shows what can you know when you're in a full-time training environment you're training every day that impact on you is quite big so yeah it's been a good few months prepping for this did you ever feel like giving up on a career in the game uh i mean you know especially after taking an eight for in a in a second team game you're 27 now you've had very very few opportunities in first team county cricket until now so yeah did you ever feel like giving up on it yeah 100 percent. i mean it's a it's a big sacrifice trying to trying to play professional cricket and break into the professional game it's not easy it's um, obviously I was with Hampshire in 2017 and nothing came of that and then with Gloucester in 2018 I felt a little bit hard done by really I thought I'd done quite well there and and justified sort of them backing me a little bit more and was disappointed with that that it didn't really materialize and that was probably the most challenging time for me it's quite a tough couple of months after the 2018 season just to go again but uh, you know I put in some really good performances for Gloucester and those performances helped me create opportunities with Warwickshire and um, to be honest ever since I've been involved with Warwickshire they've been really supportive of me and they've done everything they can to help me so you know it's been quite easy in a sense in that they've always given me that that sort of get up and go and and um, really encouraged me and they've backed me so yeah, it's nice to be able to repay that, I guess. Hmm. When did Warwickshire first get in touch with you? Um, well, I made contact with them um, in the winter after 2018. But once I'd got involved, you know, they've maintained that contact and they've been really supportive, provided me with training programmes, gym stuff that have been working with Jack Murphy and he's done a lot of work with me, um, trying to get me fitter because um, that's always been a side of the game which I've tried to you know, keep on top of, but it can be quite hard when you're working all the time. So that's been great. And then bowling-wise, Graham Welch has been a massive help um, for me. And obviously now Jeets is around. Working with him has been great. Um, so, yeah, they've been really supportive. And then Fabi has been really open and honest with me the whole time about situation and giving me good clarity on where I'm at. And that's been really important, I think, because a lot of the time when you're trialling, you don't get that clarity. You can sort of be led along and it can lead to lead to get messed around, but that's not been the case with Warwickshire. They've been really honest and it's been really good. There aren't that many left-arm wrist spinners in the game. I can't think of anyone else currently in the county game who bowls left-arm wrist spin. Is there anyone you look up to who you try to replicate aspects of the game? They do well, uh, cool leap perhaps, or do you just look at other right-arm wrist spinners? Um, to be honest, I, I actually don't. I don't really look too much at a lot of players. I, I tend, I think I've tried to learn from myself quite a lot and learn what works for me. I think we're all quite individual in everything we do. You can look at lots of leg spinners around the country. I mean, they're all slightly different. Like Parkinson is a lot more, giving it a lot more air and you've got people who bowl a lot flatter and quicker and there's loads of different types of spinners. So I've just tried to, you know, I'm quite lucky. I'm 27 and I've played a lot of cricket. So I do have a, I think I've got quite a good understanding of where I'm at as a left-arm Chinaman and understand what my strengths are and weaknesses, which I think is something that young spinners always, like myself, I was never really ready, I wouldn't say, at 21, 22, 23. I think spin, you know, it always takes a little bit longer to develop um, and whether the system allows 
that or not in England, I don't know, but it is tough once you get to a certain age to break in. So, um, yeah, I feel really comfortable with where I'm at at the moment. Um, and I guess that is just for experience of playing a lot of cricket. I've been playing a lot of minor county stuff for Wiltshire in the white ball um, comp and playing some red ball for them as well. So played a lot of white ball cricket now away from the professional scene. So I don't feel like I'm inexperienced. Um, obviously it is a level up and that is the challenge adapting to that. But um, I feel like I'm in a place now where I can adapt to that and test myself at that level. It's very, it's very interesting story, obviously, but I thought we made a really valid point about the pathways available for late developers. Yeah, and I think what we might see is a few more of these players coming through because counties are going to have to trim their squads dramatically by the sounds of it in the kind of COVID era that we now live and with ECB potentially not wanting to give out quite so much cash because they don't have quite so much cash as it stands. Um, and then what you might get is these kind of freelance cricketers coming in for the blast or for the 50 over competition and whatever it is. And that really could open up avenues for four players like this to suddenly having had hugely successful club careers to suddenly be a county cricketer um and you know he's he's had his chances he's had his knockbacks and now he's got his a proper chance and and they're they're really good stories and i always think we've got in our in the magazine scott oliver does a, a regular feature called um club cricket hall of fame and some of the players he describes have unbelievable records and they're clear and they come up against players like shane warne or wazzy macram in, in league cricket and take them to pieces and obviously everyone has their has their good days but these players are obviously capable of playing at the top level but for whatever reason it hasn't quite slotted into place well yeah the thing i find amazing about the lintot story is he took eight for 30 in a twos game uh two years ago and then got released yeah what, what were they hoping for <laughs> yeah. well, that, 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 that does seem uh particularly harsh yeah yeah do you think is there a thing in the in the county sort of pathway system where because obviously they favor all rounders because obviously you've got this weird thing at like say under 15s level where you want your county team to be winning under 15 games of cricket but you also want to be developing new players but if you have a player who's quite clearly just going to be at most like a, a t20 specialist kind of thing whereas you actually as an academy want to be producing players you kind of can play all formats and that sort of thing that is kind of not really designed to identify those players like those players will kind of Slip out as well. Like thinking about like kind of Ed Pollock as well took a slightly weird route to uh, like to open the batting for Birmingham Bears, but it's like that kind of like hyper attacking, only like a like T20s like his game sort of thing. It was a really good point. As as first class cricket or Test cricket becomes increasingly different to T20 cricket, absolutely that there needs to be different pathways for these cricketers to to come through. I guess it's doubly difficult for counties because. Uh, they are trying to produce cricketers that can play all formats, mm. which obviously T20 franchises don't have to worry about. They just pick up the players they want for that competition. Um, I don't really know what the solution to that is because a lot of purists would be outraged at the idea that you develop T20 cricketers from the age of 14 and forget about the rest. Uh, I guess you just try and keep them going at everything for as long as you possibly can, but perhaps be more open to the idea of specialisation by the time you start get to 17, 18. I think if you're a county who has got the kind of their business brain kind of screwed on, I think the idea of being a you know the T20 Academy of England is a fantastic idea because if you can you know produce a batch of you know oven ready 18 year old 19 year old batsmen and bowlers who can just go to maybe some of the bigger counties for some and you get decent money for them, as the the nature of recruitment is going to change in this post COVID environment, I think that's a there's a really obvious kind of uh, approach there that you know we see in football how like different clubs have different approaches to their academy and some don't really care and will have to buy from elsewhere and some are keen to produce i think we'll see that more it's interesting when you say about the, the nature of having to produce players across formats because you see it with just the types of players that alone the in terms of like the bowling techniques like it, when you look at leagues that are just t20 t franchise leagues you see more left-handers and leg spinners or left-handed bowlers and leg spinners because they're more valuable in T20 cricket than in other formats. And so they are overrepresented in those leagues, whereas in leagues where it's represented across all formats, so like Blast, because obviously they're contracted to all things, you see fewer left-handers and fewer leg spinners because counties are unwilling, as we say, to you know splurge on a leg spinner who only plays like one championship game in, in August and plays in the Blast all the time. It doesn't work for them financially. So I think as the formats do separate, we'll see not not just the kind of trajectories that you're talking about 
in terms of late bloomers, but also the types of players we see in terms of bowling techniques. Mm, definitely. Um, there's some sad news announced today. Northants announced that former England all-rounder David Capel has passed away at the age of 57. Capel played 15 tests and 23 ODIs for England in the late 80s and early 90s and went on to coach Bangladesh women. I thought, uh, of course, with David's family and friends. Um, the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy got underway over the last week. Um, Nats Giver scored the first 100 of the tournament. There was an extraordinary performance from Scotland captain Catherine Bryce um, in the same game for the opposing side, the Lightning. She took 5 of 29 with the ball and followed it with 71 not out from number three as the side fell just short. Her sister Sarah has 50s in both the opening two games too. Uh, another notable performance was from 18-year-old quick Izzy Wong. She had a great game for the Central Sparks against the Thunder, single-handedly reducing them to 12 for three. Um, Joe, she's someone you've um, spoke to people about before. She's very, very highly rated. We might see her in England colours reasonably soon? Um, so yeah, I uh, Izzy came to my attention uh, when I was putting together a feature on the most exciting teenage cricketers in the UK uh, a few months back. And I spoke to a bunch of coaches uh, and said, basically, just tell me the players you're most excited about. And her name kept coming up. And basically, the, everyone said she is pretty much ready to go now. It was really just age that's holding her back and making sure that she's physically fit enough for the, for the challenges ahead. But... Um, yeah, it was Paul Greetham I spoke to, who's Warwickshire's elite cricket development manager. Uh, and he recalled meeting her at 12.13 and said, what, what do you want to do in the game? And she said, I want to be the fastest English female bowler ever. Uh, and she's kind of well on the way to doing that. Uh, I think she'll play for England senior side very, very soon. Um, and yeah, she uh, she can apparently whack a ball as well in the lower order, but it's, it's bowling that's going to be her her main suit uh, and she's very exciting and it's, it's what England have since Brunt and Shrubs so we haven't really this, obviously they've fantastically stocked in terms of spinners haven't really had those seamers coming through uh, in, in women's cricket in general actually but particularly in England um, so she is going to be one of the, the next generation to hopefully take up the mantle from, from Brunt when she eventually decides to call it a day mm. um, Ben the CPL has been going on for a couple of weeks now it's been very low scoring uh, but we've seen a couple of special knocks too we have, yeah. The, the, it's not been the most kind of attractive tournament, really, which is a shame because obviously all eyes have been on it slightly more than they would normally because the pictures the... alone look disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's strange, isn't it? Because the CPL is normally the most aesthetically pleasing yeah. tournament because it's filled with like really happy, excited fans and it's beautiful weather, and so it, it is quite a stark contrast. But you know, we're going to have to get used to that with the IPL coming up as well and some empty stadiums and all that. But no, I mean, the the one knot that I wanted to talk about was um, Kieran Pollard's um, knock the other day for TKR. Um, he made 72 of 28 to drag Trimbega Knight Riders to victory. And they're seven from seven now, top of the league very much so. But I just think it's interesting how Pollard, he's always been slightly in the shadow of some of the other West Indian players. Obviously an incredible player. But there's always been Gale there with the batting or there's been Narine as kind of, you know, potentially the best T20 player ever. And Russell as well. And Pollard's always just been consistently brilliant, whoever he's played for. And he's almost reached a new career high. He's, he's probably as good as he's ever been. But this knot was particularly special because it just it just reminded you, I think, when you were watching it, the elevation that he gets on his sixes. He hits the ball so high. And he, he hits the ball in a very different way to other players around the world. And it was just a nice reminder of his slightly unique skills. I mean, and to go slightly quickly for a second, um, there are low, we, we kind of rank all, all innings by the impact that they have, i.e. like how much above the expected score that innings lifted it. And um, Pollard's was kind of about the 30th best ever in T20 cricket, but none of the ones above him were longer, were, were shorter innings. So basically no one has ever made in the major T20 leagues as much impact in as short a period of time. And it's, you know, in that West Indian batting line, you know, you're competing for deliveries to face really with Russell and Hetmeyer and Puran. And actually, you know, if he can become a, a bit like we were speaking about with Owen Morgan before the podcast, the idea that if he can come in and face five balls and you know take fifteen, then that's quite a useful skill to have at number six in that you know very congested middle order. Yeah, and then Puran as well with a hundred of forty-four, forty-five balls from number five in a reasonably low-scoring game as well. So West yeah, Indies, he was playing a, very good. He was playing a different game. I think Puran's had he's had a very good tournament. I think a lot of people are very excited about what he's going to do in the IPL because. You know, we've seen Hetmeyer be the kind of slightly more dominant of the two over the last two years, and they're kind of tagged together as a duo, kind of left-handed batting in the middle, those kind of similar-ish skills. But whilst Hetmeyer has slightly receded in the last year or so, Puran, after his knock at the World Cup um, up at Durham, I think it was, when he got that ton against Sri Lanka, um, ever since then he seems to have just kind of stepped up and he's batting with a bit more control. He's still explosive. He's still attacking about as much, looking at his attack at shot percentage. But his full shot percentage has gone to the floor. He's now 
becoming more rounded, more com- kind of complete batsman. And he's gone from being the kind of guy you think like, oh, you know, I'll watch him, but he's probably only, he's probably get out, get out quite cheaply. He's now become like, oh God, he could be the main man for a very good T20 batting lineup. And it's fun. The CPL, as I say, hasn't been the best tournament really, but it's kind of growing into it. But there have been these nice little individual stories, which, you know, as with these T20 tournaments, generally you kind of find the narrative about halfway through and you can kind of tag yourself onto it. So hopefully Puran and Pollard are going to kind of continue to thrill in amongst the of empty stands and slightly drab skies. And West Indies are going to take some beating, aren't they, at next year's World Cup? I mean, the guys who aren't going to get in the team would do pretty well. Like West Indies B batting liner. I mean, the bowling is is mixed. Although when Narayan comes back in, it's going to be it's going to be stronger, and they've got some talent there. But blimey, I mean, you've, like I was saying, you've got Hetmeyer, Russell, Pollard, Gale, um, Puran. Uh, I mean, Brathwaite. <laughs> I mean, those are the experienced guys, and then they've got youngsters coming through. You've got Evan Lewis, Brandon King. There are so many fantastic players, and I think that. I mean, it's it's such a cliche, but like we all kind of want the West Indies to be brilliant in in global tournaments. They're such a fun side, and there's all that history and tradition, and the fact that they are like the T Twenty dynasty team at international level. Um, I, I I really want them to go close next year, and I think they will. The bowling is a slight flaw, but they, you know, that I mean that power is just immense. Well done for getting to the end, listeners. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Joe. This has been the Wiz and Cricket Weekly Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, tell your friends. If you're feeling especially nice today, why not leave us a five star review in the podcast app? Podcast Network.